Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, we've had many near-death experiencers on the show before, but today we have Dr. Atwater, whose research into near-death experiences is profound, but specifically her area is childhood near-death experiences. And it's always kind of fascinated me on why children have near-death experiences, what the experiences are across the board, how they deal with it differently than adults, and so much more. It is a wonderful conversation and might be a little bit of a tearjerker, so prepare yourselves. This is an emotional episode, so let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. P.M.H. Atwater. How are you doing, Dr. Atwater? I'm doing great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm I'm so excited to talk to you. It's it, I mean, we we had an adventure getting here to this point this morning, which is wonderful. But we're here now. We are here now, and I am grateful. <laughs> so my, I'm I'm very intrigued by your work, uh, and you know, I've had a lot of near death experiencers on the show, and it's it's one of the topics that really fascinates me. And again, so many different walks of life. But what I found really interesting about your work is your work with children and and young people who've gone through NDEs, which we'll talk about a little bit. But before we get into all that, how did you start working in the near-death experience space? I died. <laughs> so you had your own NDE. I died. <laughs> I, di- I died three, ta- three times in three months. Oh, wow. That's January 2, January 4, March... Oh, I think it was March 23, something like that. And then later that fall, I had three major relapses. Um, and um, oh, how can I put it into words? I, I, it, it, I had to relearn how to crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to tell the difference between left and right, how to see properly, hear properly, and rebuild all my belief systems. Um, I was raped, oh. became pregnant. Uh, it, it was because of difficulties with the pregnancy. Uh, 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 the, the, the three deaths were, were you know, it was from the miscarriage. And, and they were all long and complex. Each was different. Mm-hmm. And the third one, Yes, the third one. <laughs> that voice spoke had lots of lots of you know aspects to it, but mainly this voice spoke. I call it the voice like none other. It was not a guide. It was not a guardian, and it's not an archangel. It was none of that stuff. It was a voice so big. It's like the universe itself talking to me, and that voice said, "Test." revelation you are to do the research one book for each death um book one was not named 
books two and three were named. Book two is Future Memory. Uh, if you haven't read that book yet, you need to do it, it because it's not a book. It is a labyrinth. Um, every uh, sentence, every paragraph, every page is part of the mathematics I was given and, and, and used to create the labyrinth. So therefore, you, you, you read through it like you would walk through a real labyrinth. You can't skip read or, you know, you'll think I wrote a dumb book. In other words, you stay on the path. And the purpose of Future Memory, the book, is to, is to bring your consciousness up to the next highest level possible for you at that time. And the third book was a manual for developing humans. It's, it's a fun book. Um, well, you know, who of us are ever taught how to be a human being? I mean, when you go to the first grade, what do you learn? When you go to kindergarten, what do you learn? When you go to the sixth grade, what do you learn? Who teaches us how to be a, a human being? And you know, several, um, maybe maybe a thousand, you know, 1500 years ago, 2000 years ago, I don't know how long, long ago, um, people um, used hue for the sign of God, for the voice of God, hue was God. Mm -hmm. H-U, hue. So human was God-man, God-woman. So it's literal. A manual for developing humans is to help you to be um, the, the human being you are, that you were born to be, to be a co-creator with the creator. I mean, that's who we are. That's what we are. That, that's what we're here for. So let me how to be a co-creator with the creator. And, and that, that book shows you how. So let, let's go back for a second. So you said you had three near-death experiences. And when you went through those three, what happened? Can you kind of guide us through a little bit of the first three, well, the, all three of them, exactly what happened when you when, went to the other side and what you saw and so on? Okay. <laughs> if, I, if you want an exact, we'll be here for hours. Okay. So just give me, give me the cliff notes. <laughs> cliff note. Uh, death number one. Ah. I ran to the bathroom and I boarded on the toilet. Mm -hmm. And the pain was so bad that I rose up, I swear, into the heavens itself. And I was screaming at the heavens. And, and, and I heard my voice echo throughout the heavens itself. And when I, yeah, when I, I looked down, <laughs> this is the funny part. I, I saw my body all bloody on the, on the floor. I'm a neat Nick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no way I'm going to own up to that body is my own because it's all messy. But I kept bumping into the light bulb. And in my case, in my first one, the light was the light bulb. And I kept bumping into the light bulb and I couldn't figure out why I was bumping into the bulb. And then there, there came like blobs, like every thought I, I, I thought that issued a blob in the air like ink blots and I couldn't figure out what they were and I didn't like them and so pretty soon I found myself jerked back into my body literally jerked you know you know you got a rubber band and you're stretching out and then you let go and wham and I entered through the top uh, of the head where your fontanelle is you know when you're a baby and and pulled back into my body back to my toes uh um you're much bigger on the other side than you are on this side so you have to squeeze to get back in well i was still bleeding and and i couldn't figure out why so I went to bed and stuffed myself with as many pillows and blankets as I could and went back to sleep. I can always sleep. I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. And um, 
they use the 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 field outside of my window in Twin Falls, Idaho. We, we uh, uh, lived outside of town, and they used this that field uh, as their gunnery range. And I never ever heard them. I, I never believed my dad that they were shooting guns out there because I never heard one. When I when I go to sleep, that's it, gone. Um, so you know that was not unusual for me at mm -hmm. all. And uh... we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Then um, it finally occurred to me that maybe I ought to go to a doctor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fine, but I finally got, got, got the, the message. Um, um, I have three children, I have two daughters, and they went on to school, and to the best of my ability, I got in my car, and it took, oh, it took me, seemed like, for, forever to drive, like, maybe five or six blocks to the doctor's office, um, and, and when I walked in the door, the head nurse was there, and she screamed. She said, I looked like a, that I had died. Mm -hmm. So she rushed me into the doctor, told him everything that happened. And all he did was laugh. He laughed at me. He said, here you are in this condition at your age. And all we do is laugh, what, which wasn't very kind. So he gave me a shot in the right thigh vein, uh, which if he would have read my records, he would have known I couldn't take the shot uh, and sent me home. And it took me almost as um, long to get home as to get there. And the minute I walked in the door, the, the bleeding stopped. The hemorrhaging stopped. Like, like you know, you, you turn a faucet and it's, gone but the pain began in especially the right leg and i thought well i'm just gonna go back to bed again <laughs> so i went back to bed again and instantly asleep and didn't wake up till the next morning when my daughter was shaking me and saying you know should i call the office you can't come come to, you can't come back to work and I said, yes, call them, tell them I can't come. My, my le um, legs are, are, are um, lots and lots of pillows propped way high. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time I ever looked at my leg, right leg, right thigh. And it was crimson red. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a large bump growing out the side of my leg. And... Um, I, I just couldn't figure out what it was or what was going on. So I decided to call for help. We had a ranch style house. Um, in those days, you didn't have, you know, what you have now. All we had was a wall phone in the kitchen. That's it, period, end of story. So I began to crawl from my bedroom through the living room, through the dining room, to get to the wall phone in the kitchen. And it took me forever to crawl because it was very, very painful. And I made it as far as the dining room and, um, and I died. I just, I died and I, I um, floated up from my body and lots and lots of things happened incredible things happen, being able to see thought, um, create things on the other side. Were you met by somebody? No, never was. The idea that you're always met by someone is false. Okay. Most people are met by someone, but not everybody. And in my cases, I was never met by anyone in all three. So did you have, so you never had a being, you never had a council of elders. Did you have life reviews or anything like that? In this one, I did. Okay. 
I had a life review. I, I had I had an experience with creation. I had an experience with the void. And then I had the life review. And in my case, that life review inclu included not only what I did, but the result of every thought I had ever thought on the environment, on other people, on the world at large, plus um, my just being in the earth world, the, the vibration of my being here, um, that, um, what the causality of that was with the air, with the water, with the ground, with the plants. So I had the whole gestalt of my ever having existed in the earth plane. And that to me was hell in the sense that nobody ever told me that every, every thought you think goes out and has a life of its own. Nobody ever taught me that. Hmm. Nobody ever taught me that my, my vibration, just being in the world, wherever I walked, changes the world or affects the world or has an effect on the rocks, the plants, you know, everything, the air. Um, nobody ever told me that. And that to me was a shock. And I was, I was just looking at that and just, oh my goodness. And, um, uh, you know, many, many things happened. Um, uh, being very much in the void and realizing what the void was. Which one was it? Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, there's nothing in the void. There's absolutely, it's completely dark, black. There's nothing there. But there is a vibration. It's very similar to when you're, when you're making jello and you just <laughs> flop the jello out, uh, um, out of the dish onto a plate. And just as you begin to touch that jello on the plate, you're almost to the jello. You're almost there. And there's this, there's this happening, this sense, this, this wiggle. Hmm. And it's that wiggle that is responsible for creation. Okay. It's that sense of movement, movement, but not movement. That, uh, that all creation comes from. Yeah, it was, it was just fantastic. Um, when you came back from your near-death experience, is that when you started to like, I have to start studying these and start interviewing other people who had these oh, kind of experiences? That was in my third one. Uh -huh. In my third one, that was when I met the voice. That's when I was told to do this work. Um, I was not told how to do it or, or how long it would take me. And the only way... I could think of where I could do this kind of work, this research, um, was to use police investigative techniques because that's what I knew. I was raised in a police station. I knew police investigative techniques. Now that that's the techniques back in the forties. Um, and I knew those techniques. So well, when I was reasonably human, which took a year, <laughs> right. Lots of things involved with, with that. Um, what really helped me to be, to discover who and what I really was, was in November mm -hmm. 
when I, I wasn't getting well, the doctor was concerned my friends were concerned. So they um, decided together that I should be taken up to Seattle, Washington to the Mind Miraculous Symposium. And uh, <laughs> and that would help me. And, and that's exactly what happened. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, can you believe a doctor would get up at 5.30 in the morning to give his patient a, a you know, a, a, a shot in the arm and, and lots of, you know, medicine so I could be trucked up. But that's what happened. And went to the Mind Miraculous Symposium and the first speaker, Dr. William Tiller, physicist at um, Stanford. His talk, his talk was the eternal now. And he believed that everything was simultaneous, everything. And um, at the end of his talk, I, I can't remember any of his talk, but at the end of his talk, he, he yeah. there, there was this great, huge, giant screen, maybe five, six stories tall. I mean, huge screen. And on that screen, he flashed up his drawing, his graph of, of what the eternal now lo looks like in physics, how you can draw that in physics. And it was the exact same thing I saw in my third near-death experience, exact. Mm. And I jumped up from that chair and ran out into the foyer and collapsed under a, 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 a wall sconce. And I just cried and cried and cried. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Uh, he saw it too. He knows about it. I'm not cr crazy. And from that moment on, uh, I began to get well. I got well right away. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and in 1978, I... Um, yeah, I, I, I just walked out on my life. I did. On the very day I was to become a bank uh, executive, you know, in those days, yeah, women, women didn't become bank executives. But on the very day that I could have a bank title, um, I quit my job. I, I, I walked into my boss's office to, on a, on a Monday morning, and, um, I was supposed to have a an appointment with my boss. I did. I was there, and I told my boss, you know, um, sorry, but I'm quitting my job and I'm going to chase rainbows. And my boss went white. She said, "Sit down. Don't say another word." My boss was very, very logical. Wow, logical. And, and and at four o'clock that morning, she had been awakened by a very unusual dream when she went to her boss and said to him, I'm going to have to replace me because I was going to chase rainbows. <laughs> That's not fair. You knew before I did. <laughs> I didn't know till nine that morning. She knew at four in the morning. So I, I sold my home. Uh, stored or sold everything I had. My ch children decided to go elsewhere. Uh, my son then was um, um, off um, uh, taking a cruise school aboard a square rigger in, in the Atlantic Ocean and, uh, and decided to join the Coast Guard. My oldest daughter decided uh, um, uh, um, to be a drafter at a large architectural firm. My youngest daughter decided to leave and, uh, and go live with her father. And so all of a sudden they were gone. And then I was gone. And I went first to the Pacific Ocean to watch the sunset silver over the Pacific. And then I crossed the United States, fulfilling all my childhood dreams and wishes, wound up 
in the DC area watching the sun rise golden over the Atlantic. And that's when I began. And uh, I, I began telling my story. <laughs> of course, in a police station. <laughs> They had a very large police station and one room was for the public, before the public. And so, so I told my story. And the frightful thing that happened to me was after I, I, I was over, a woman came up, to, came up to me with stars in her eyes and she said, oh, I wish something would happen like that to me so I could do it too. And it's like, horror. I mean, I, did I do something to to mislead her? Mm. Um, you know, she, uh, meditation or the other different ways that you, you can, you know, you can learn more about your own soul and spirituality. Um, but she was thinking I, that she should die because I did. And it just right. so horrified me to, that I never talked about my own near-death experience again for, oh, decades. Um, <clears throat> but you were doing the work, but you were still doing research. Uh, that's when I started to do the research. So and let me... So then let me ask you this, because I know you've interviewed, I think, over 7,000, I think, or something along those lines of people with near-death experiences. But tell nearly me about... 5, nearly 5,000 adults and children. So tell me about your work with children, because there's not a lot of literature about, near other than yourself, about near-death experiences and children. What, what, what was your... what? Tell me about your work with children. Well, well of course... You know, uh, I began with with children many, 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 many years ago, and I found them very different, of course, in the way they talk about something like this. With a child, you're never above their eye level, ever, ever. You can't be, or they feel that they must obey you. You have to be at their eye level so that you are a friend. So with little ones, of course, I spent a lot of time on the floor. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and we, we would just talk. And I, I would just talk about their experience they had. And I'd, well, tell me about it. Tell me about it. And then I would talk to the parents. What's your child like now? Yeah, before and after. Um that led to more and more meetings and opportunities with children, even uh, those that had grown, maybe we're in their 20s and 30, 30s, that were talking about their experience as a child and what happened to them. And, and I, I wrote my first book about that, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. But then I got to thinking, you know, this isn't enough. This isn't good enough. There's something else here that I need to go much further and deeper with. And that was taking a, a better look, a deeper look at those that had the experience between birth and the age of five because those children were different from any other children, even tweens and teens. So there's something going on here. So I, de I devoted years more. Oh, how could I say this? I found that with those that had their experience between birth and the age of five, they had nothing to compare anything with. Right. So there's not this idea of mom and dad and brothers and sisters and this kind of thing. I found very clearly that 90% did not bond with their parents. That doesn't mean they didn't love them. They just never bonded with them. 
they the way they viewed the world was very different from any, any other kid. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They knew more than their parents did. They knew more than their siblings did. They knew more than their teacher did. And so they had a lot of problems with um, attacks and criticism from other kids in school. That was a big issue with these these youngsters. But there was just something really different about these kids. Mm. When I say that, I, I, I'm going to say, let's see, do I, do I have some numbers here I can give you? I'd love to be able to give you... Um, Well, let's see. I, I don't have it at hand right now, so it's okay. <clears throat> yes, I do. Birth to to, uh, to fifteen years. Um, I, I changed that to birth uh, just under six. The, um, these youngsters giving an IQ test when they were older. You know, uh, when they were in school, they're giving the IQ test. 48%. Now that this is a specific study, 397 people, all bore, uh, um, had that experience between birth and the age of five. So when they're a little bit older in school and they take the standard IQ test, they were scoring between 150 to 160. 48% 48% were scoring between 150 to 160. This is genius. However, if they had, uh, if it was birth to 15 months, if they had a dark light experience instead of bright light experience or a white light experience, they were, they were scoring 190 and above. All of them. All of them. When you're talking about kids, you're talking about three lights. You're not talking about one. Mm. Uh, when, when the kids, when the kids talk about light, there is this incredibly powerful, powerful, powerful light. Doesn't have any specific color at all. Just really powerful light. And then there's this this dark or black light. Some sometimes with purple tinges in it. And there's something about, there's something very loving and very wonderful and very nourishing about this black light. And then there's this white or bright light, sometimes with gold or silver in it, but this white light. And this is a light you can talk to. Um, this, uh, this is a light you can converse with. And... Um, I would ask these kids about, tell me more about these lights. And they said, well, that white light, that's father light. That black light, that's mother light. And that all consuming huge light, that's father, um, that's God's light. And the father light and the mother light, they come from God's light. Hmm. And so they were very, very clear about this. And multiple kids say things like this. Yeah. Didn't matter whether I was in Canada or the United States or where I was. They, they were very clear about the differences between these three lights. And if, and if you get the book, The Forever Angels, please, 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 everybody on the planet, Get the book, The Forever Angels, uh, because that, that's what takes you through uh, my research of children between birth and the age of, of five. And, and you, you must read that because these kids are, are not like any other kids. Their near-death near experiences are not like any other near-death experience. They're different. So what is a typical near-death experience, if I can say typical? 
uh, near-death experience for for children, and depending, is is it different for a five-year-old versus a one or two-year-old? No, no, it isn't. So, what is a typical one? Um. Well, let let me give you um some of my cases. Okay, please. In this uh, one case, this is Penny. And she's in utero. She's not born yet. Mm-hmm. And and it's her mother smoking. Oh, that bothers her so much. And, and she dreads her mother taking out a cigarette and smoking. Um, and, and that, uh, that alone, she felt like she was choking and she was dying, uh, with another child. This one is Alma. Alma was about two years old. A family friend, a male, a big male with a big tummy would often come to visit the family. And when he would see her door open, he would go into her bedroom and shut the door and he would rape her. He's a little girl. So you've got this big guy on top of her and, and, and she can't breathe and he's raping her and she leaves her body, certainly in a near-death experience. He's, she's up there on the ceiling. I, I, I want everybody to hear this. When a child leaves their body in fright or trauma, yeah, and they want help, that's their way of saving their soul. That's their way of saving who they are. It is not an out of body trip, it is an emergency save. They're trying to save who they are. So, this is what Alma did. She tried to save who she was, and and she uh, would would take these out of body trips. Another one that you'll love, kind of like, um, uh, uh, what, what I've talked about with lights. This is Star, and and Star, when she was still hadn't been born yet but it's still on the other side and it was all black or dark. And she was there with other beings. She was choosing her life to come. And she was kind of, you know, wondering, wondering, what if, what if, what if? And all of a sudden she's pushed in. And she's stuck on uh, on on this the other side. Uh, so for her that was very traumatic. It's like oh, I want to leave this perfect world, and I get shoved in. You get a you get a lot of that kind of thing. But that that sounds like but that sounds more like a pre birth memory as opposed to a near death experience. Is that fair? Kind of yes, and kind of no. Okay. When we're talking about pre-birth memory, what we're talking about is that stream of consciousness that that seems to be, um, that we're all a part of. And the kids describe this as, is, you come in, you take a dip, and then you go back out. And that's all a life is, it's a dip. And, and you're, you're there on the other side. And for many of them, they don't want to take the dip. They get shoved or they get pushed or for some reason they're shoved in. And that's trauma. Uh, a lot of, of, of child experiencers, especially between birth and the age of five, are very uncomfortable here. Um, they don't like being here. And there's, well, let, let, let me give you a comparison here. 
74, 74% of, of, of these kids. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They develop incredible mental abilities, uh, artistic abilities, all, all kinds of abilities, and they go out and make a very good life for themselves. Um, there were a number of them who, be, who became millionaires. Um, a very rich and happy and good life. Yet, remember that 74%. 74% regretted being here and preferred uh, to be on the other side, went through PTSD and wanted to die. It is not unusual with children um, who uh, who try to commit suicide. Not unusual at all. Uh-huh. But let me give you an idea about this. For a child, for a small child, um, where they were was so filled with love. So much love, so much joy. And they were not breathing there. When they start breathing, that world is gone. So for a child, logic to a child is, ah, if I stop my breathing, I can get back. Sure. So they stop their, their breathing to get back there. That's, yeah. That's it. That that's the whole thing. A child doesn't um, realize that um, killing themselves is a, not necessarily a good deal, and it, and it would hurt their parents, and mm. you know all of the, all of the, all of these problems could uh, could occur. So. Um, there's a whole chapter in the book, PTSD with the NDE, 34%. Now that's 397 experiencers. 34% were positive about their experience. Six, 61% were negative about their experience. Experience meaning the, the near-death experience. The near-death experience. So is that the white light, black light concept you were talking about? All of them. All of them. Okay. And, and and the reason for this upset was ugh, they all simply wanted to go home. They felt a guilt for wanting to go back, a betrayal for getting kicked out. And, uh, you know, it's dealing with the, this idea of, I still want to go back. This, this wo- woman, one woman who was 82, um, she was still longing to go back, and she's eighty-two. Yeah. Um, in, in the in the the Forever Angels, in that book, um, it's based on people, children who have the near-death experiences as a child, and and uh, going forward. And they're looking forward, uh, they're growing, maybe at 21, 22, 25. Then I went after those people who were very, very mature, maybe 60, 70, 80. And if they verify their near-death experience and that 82 woman could because she had a sister that was 67 and remembered it. Uh, if they could verify their experience, I ask him one one question. Looking back, did that near death experience you had did it make any difference in your life? And and the results were just tremendous. It gives us the first and only study 
we have of the great round. That's the way Bruce Grayson put it. Of the great round, you see, you see before and you see after coming coming back. The older person looking back, the younger younger child looking forward. You see the great round, and and, and you realize that this idea of, of home, this idea of belonging, this idea of love, is behind all of it. It's behind mm -hmm. all of it. it um, surviving and, and and making life of yourself or regretting it and 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 you know um maybe in regret for being here mm. it's all about home and and <laughs> what i found is so simple to get rid of the whole thing really for most of them when there's still a child teach them how to take visualization 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 classes teach them visualization if they learn visualization techniques when they're a child then they can go back there stay a little while come back here because this is where their job is and and that's all it takes to be able to go back and 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 relive it again or be be with their friends and then and then come back here and everything is fine with mom and dad and 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 you know and school that's all it took visualization techniques and you know i'm screaming as a researcher saying wake up world you know if we, if we want if we if we want to help our child experiencers here is a powerful exercise we can use that will make all the difference in the world. Just, you know, incredible. And another thing, and, and now I'm, I'm going a, a little bit forward here and I'm, I'm talking about abortion. Mm. And I, we, we need to talk about abortion. And I talk about it in the book. And, and, you know, the woman's right to choose and all of this kind of thing. In my research, that one big major study, 397 people, the vast majority uh, could remember their birth. One third could remember life in the womb. Two of them <laughs> remembered conception. One of them, when she was older, drew a picture of it gave it to her parents and they were so embarrassed. She was absolutely right. All the positions, everything, she got it all. <laughs> There's more going on here than what we prefer to look at. Mm. Uh, and and it, in my own family, I have two daughters, a son, and one of my daughters got pregnant out of, out of you know, she wasn't married, got pregnant, didn't want the child. Um, it was far too early in her life. Mm -hmm. And she came to me and said, Mom, Mom, what do I do? And I said, my dear, it's not the woman's right to choose. It's the soul. You must go to the soul and talk this over with the soul. You're dealing with a soul here, not just a bunch of cells. You're dealing with a soul of a human being. So she did. She, she went and she prayed. She got, got into deep meditation and she prayed. Uh, and the little soul was a boy, little boy. And she ex explained to this little boy, boy that she re really wasn't ready at all. Um, and, and would he please leave? And he said, sure. You know, no problem. I'm happy to leave. I'll go somewhere else and find another mother. So she got her abortion. She felt good. The family felt good. Everybody felt good about it. Um, if that child had said, yes, I want to come with you, 
then that means there's something special to learn between mm. the two of them. So when I hear all this news now today about the woman's right to choose, I'm saying to myself, uh-uh, it's the soul's right to choose. Get in touch with the soul of that child. Find out what the child wants. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So let me ask you, with all the research that you've done with children, were there any unpleasant or hell-like experiences that they went through? Yes, absolutely. So can, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Because it means it, it, I understand an older an older person who's been around a little bit that might go through a hellish experience because they're dealing with stuff that they're dealing with and so on and so forth. But a child, it's interesting. So please let me know what did what did you find? Well, in my research base broadly, one one out of seven in my re- research with adults and children, one out of, out of seven had a hellish or unpleasant experience. You know, we have to say unpleasant because not all of them are really hellish. Um, With a child, this one child saw kind of like black beings with pointed fingers and they were after her. It was a little girl, they were after her. And she, she was screamed her way out of the experience. Um, we had an, I had another case where we wouldn't necessarily call it hellish, but it was to her, um, where, um, there was this big stage and on that stage, she was acting out or saw, um, elements in her life where she uh, was attacking or having problems with her sisters and she was attacking her sisters. And and to her, that was just awful, awful, awful because she could see, see how her attacks against her sisters were wrong. She shouldn't be doing that. And she came back so horrified that she, she had done that, that um, it, it, it just caused her a lot of difficulty until she got older and could, it could then begin to realize that this was um, not just a warning, but you know, a helpful way of her to, to see her behavior and the effect it had on others. So that was another one. Now, do do because I've heard other other near death experience stories that that are hellish like or unpleasant, but then it turns into a positive, meaning a, a, a you know, being of light comes and you know takes them away, or it, it it turns into something positive. They just have to kind of go through that first in order to get to the positive. Was that the case in children, or was it hellish and then they came back? It was the case with children too. Okay. Um, most of them came back and then dealt with it and began to learn, you know, what it meant for them, what they could do about that. But there was a pop, but they did, they, they, they did go to a positive place before they came back or did they come back from a, a, a... you know, it's like that, like that little girl on all these, yeah, horrible fingers and nails at her. Um, she came back with that still very real. Oh, okay. You know, in her life, uh, it was she did not uh, at all deal with that on the other side. No, she had to deal with it on this side. Um, so so you you get all of these different types. Uh, you know, th- there are clearly four types of near-death experiences. Please tell me. They're, they're what I call the initial, where uh, uh, um, maybe it's just a brief out-of-body experience or the loving nothingness, 
or um, there's a friendly voice and that's all there is to it. There's the unpleasant or hellish experience. I think we know about that one. We have the pleasant or heavenly experience, not even, not even uh, over, over, over 50% have that. I had 48% had the heavenly. And, th and then there's this, the uh, ascendant, um, the ascendant experience. With the ascendant experience, it, it almost never ever talks about the family or anything to do with the family or the person as an individual. Um, you, you'll get your past life experiences with the unpleasant or the pleasant, but you don't get it with a transcendent. L let me get it, uh, give you, um, uh, let me give you an example of a transcendent experience. And this is uh, Ricky Bradshaw. Um, his case was oh, horrendous. And um, when he was in an iron lung fighting to come back, he was shown all of history from beginning to end. He was told that he could never talk about the future. He could only talk about the past and now. Uh, Ricky Bradshaw became one of the most incredible cases in history. Um, he was ground in half. Actually, he was um, a, a sort of a, a bag boy at a grocery store. It, it was like 2021, 20, um, getting money for college. And the, these two cars were in front of the grocery store and there were older ladies and um, he was bending over to put the bag of groceries into the trunk of, of, of a car. When the woman behind him somehow for some reason uh, had problems with the gas pedal or something and she suddenly lunged her car uh, lunged forward and 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 the woman in the car in front then lunged backward and and Ricky was caught in the middle he, he uh, fell so that the two fenders ground him in half at the mid-level the only thing left attached was the spinal cord that's it um, of course, the police came, the ambulance came, he was rushed to the hospital. There's nothing they could do about him. So they just, you know, put, put him to one side. Well, fortunately for Ricky, this happened to be a teaching hospital. And, and, and so here's some would-be doctors that are down there and they go to the head and they say, do you ha have any cadavers around here that we can play with? He said, yeah, you can have this guy over here. And that was Ricky. They put him in another room, hooked him all up. And, you know, we're doing the, the pretend doctor thing. And all of a sudden, the, the machine began, began to register heartbeat. Well, the, the would-be doctors thought there was something wrong with the machine. How long was he dead? Um, long enough for to be Them rushed to the hospital, put in the agending room, hooked up by these would-be doctors. Gotcha. And then for them to run and, and find a real doctor and, and bring him back and show him the machinery and saying, you know, there's something wrong with this machine. It's showing a heartbeat. And the doctor screamed and said, he's really coming back. And so the real doctor took over. And then we have the case of Ricky Bradshaw. So what happened to Ricky on the other side? He sounds like a fascinating case. Oh my, oh my. 
lots and lots more than I could ever tell you. Can you give me some highlights? I mean, besides the, I saw the entire history of humanity thing. That's a pretty big one. One of the things that Ricky had to deal with was his lungs wouldn't work. So he's put in an iron lung. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, and he was in this room. Nobody else was there. And, and um, the light kept flicking on and off and the iron lung kept flicking on and off and he's panicking. Um, what do I do? What do I do? He prayed and prayed and prayed. Nobody told him. Well, of course, they wouldn't tell him that uh, one of the average after effects of a near-death experience is electrical sensitivity. He was doing that himself. You know, in, in my office right here is all set up to handle my energy. Otherwise, I couldn't do a Zoom show with you. Mm. I mean, no way. I, I, I couldn't handle a, a keyboard. Um, I can't handle an iPhone or, you know, cell phone or all that. I mean, I mean <laughs> my husband could do that, but I can't. Mm -hmm. because if I, uh, um, I brought down <laughs> the power of many uh, a building or, or certainly part of the building where I was because of so, my own electrical sensitivity. So, so, yeah. so, so Ricky's, so Ricky's seeing the eyes. Uh, the lights going back and forth. So what happened? Oh, well, he then began slowly, but surely to catch on to the fact that uh, maybe he can handle this through prayer. And he did. <sighs> Dr. Atwater. I mean, it's, I mean, this is a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, your research has been your research is you know pretty remarkable in regards to children and what I mean the genius thing is pretty remarkable and you know they're so closely connected to the other side. I've heard so many times people saying uh, that children they when they're younger they're pure joy because they're connected to the other side and as they're conditioned or trained in being a human they start to slowly get that that goes away and they become more what we are uh and, and a day-to-day -day basis but the fascination is of them dying coming back at a very young age at five-year-olds and, and, and all the common commonalities you have how many children did you interview over the years well i i, I can't really give you a number because um my research base is nearly five thousand adults and children that one major study i did was 397 but uh, you know there's lots of kids besides that mm -hmm. um but uh, but again this idea that we really really need to just take a second look at kids um when they're older fine but when they're young uh, we, we need to, we really need to look at that. Mm. It's not what we think, you know, we human beings love a, a good story. You know, we love all the angels and all this, uh, wonderful and beautiful things children are saying, okay, who goes back to the, that kid eight years later, 13 years later, 27 years later, look friend. It takes, for the average near-death experiencer, it takes seven to 10 years to integrate the experience. Mm -hmm. For the average child experiencer, it takes 20 to 40 years. Wow. A child does not integrate, a child compensates. So you're looking at some, you're looking at a whole different package because a child as they're growing up 
they'll do everything they can to mind mom and dad or you know get along in school do what their teachers do and when they get older do what the crowd does let me give you an example right now uh about three months ago i received a phone call it was from from a cop on the beat in new york city he was in his late 40s he was crying he just got a hold of the book the forever angels and read it he said for the first time in my life i know i'm normal this is a big one with kids children do not integrate their experience they compensate and that's exactly what the cop did that's fascinating we need to take another look at kids well, um, Dr. Atwater, I'm going to have a few, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my guests. Um, what is your definition of living a good life? Laughter. Laughter and joy. Um, no matter what I'm doing, no matter where I am. Even, oh, if, even if I'm pissed. Laughter and joy. How do you define God? All that is. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? It'll be different for different people. But if we're going to look at it as you are attempting to, I would say we're here to learn. And where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? www.pmhatwater.com. I produce a free monthly newsletter. Get on that website. Go over to newsletter. Um, fill out the form. You're in. It's free. It's monthly. There's an archive. You can um, go through the archive and see uh, previous um previous issues i warn everybody my newsletter is for the curious <laughs> and if you're not curious you won't like my newsletter and and of course they can get your books on amazon yes dr Adelward, and on my website too dr Adelward, i thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your uh, your research and your journey and your experiences with everybody here so i appreciate you my dear thank you so much i appreciate you too bye-bye <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Atwater so much for coming on the show and sharing all of her knowledge and experience with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 156. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.